20 years is a long time to keep a secret, especially when dozens of people know what it is. So let me ask you a question about this particular secret. Should we ever say a murder victim had it coming? Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening, I believe that you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI, not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is Season 4, Episode 28. Our Little Secret by Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie is our book this week, and it shares the story of Danny Paquette's murder in New Hampshire. It became a cold case, remaining a secret between two high school friends and a few dozen other people. Our guest today is Eric Schwalbach, and he's going to talk about how to support kids so they aren't thinking that these drastic actions are the best options available to them. They didn't create the situation they were stuck in, but they still had to deal with it. November 9th, 1985 was the day Danny Paquette was murdered in Hookset, New Hampshire. It was a Saturday, but Danny wasn't one to just sit around doing nothing. Richard Duarte was planning to head to Danny's place to work on a car that he stored there. Other men were expected that day to pick up something Danny had welded for them, and a teenage boy came over to do some work on one of Danny's projects. It was just a regular Saturday. What wasn't so regular was Danny's interest in teenage girls, including Richard Duarte's daughter. Duarte knew, but he didn't want to lose Danny as a friend. Yeah, wrap your head around that. Duarte's thoughts on the matter were interrupted by what he thought was a gunshot. He looked around for Danny and saw him lying on the ground. His first thought was that Danny had shocked himself while welding. Then he noticed that Danny was bleeding from a gunshot wound. First responders did what they could, but Danny died at the hospital. His brother Victor vowed that he would find out what happened to Danny, which wouldn't be easy since Danny's illicit desires had produced a long list of potential suspects. Ugly rumors surfaced, suggesting that Danny's second wife had left him because he molested one of their daughters. Others told police that Danny had been dating a 15-year-old girl behind the back of his legal-aged girlfriend. Danny's cleaning lady even said that she wouldn't come to his house to clean unless her sister or a friend could come with her. Then there was a teenage neighbor girl who was questioned and nervously denied that Danny had touched her inappropriately. When questioned, Danny's 15-year-old adopted daughter, Melanie, admitted that Danny had molested her and a friend of hers from the neighborhood. Melanie was asked where she'd been the day Danny was killed, and she told them she'd been at a field hockey game over an hour away. Eric Winterst, the boy Melanie said she'd gone to that field hockey game with, gave police the same story. Investigators also had to check out the fact that one of Danny's sisters-in-law had recently embezzled a large sum of money from her employer. People wondered, did the family need that money to get rid of a troublesome family member? Police couldn't ignore that possibility, but their investigation was about to get shut down by someone higher up who said there would be no more action on the case until it could be proved that the bullet that killed Danny wasn't just a stray from nearby hunters. Danny's brother Victor was livid. He didn't realize that someone had confessed to the murder. They just didn't confess to the police. Melanie and Eric remained friends even as she went off to college and he floated around with no real plan for his life. Rumors still floated around town that Melanie and Eric had killed Danny. It bothered Eric to hear that, but not because it wasn't true. He was trying to build a life, but he couldn't shake the guilt of what he'd done. 
He was finally starting to realize the ripple effect of crime and how many people had been affected by his actions. He'd thought he'd been protecting a friend. He'd thought that he was a hero. But he was afraid of what would happen if he confessed to police. Of course, keeping things hidden wasn't completely within his control. He had moved out west to get away from his demons when his father called from New Hampshire with the news that the police were investigating Danny's death again. It seems they'd received a couple of letters that changed everything. Victor and some other family members had gone on a talk show pleading with anyone who had information about Danny's death to come forward. Two people took them up on that. One sent in a typed postcard claiming that it was common knowledge that Eric Winhurst had shot Danny to avenge the abuse that his friend Melanie had suffered at Danny's hands. The second letter was also typewritten and laid out the same basic information. Authorities tried to question Melanie again, but she told them she was too busy to talk about her stepfather's death. She did offer to answer typed out questions. It's much easier to control your answers that way. Eric Winterst retained counsel and refused to talk to the police. None of Melanie or Eric's friends wanted to talk either. But finally, a man came forward to tell police that a former girlfriend of his had told him that she'd had her stepfather murdered because he had molested her. He hadn't known whether to believe her or not. Now, with police listening in, he called that girlfriend. Of course, it was Melanie. She said she'd lied to him back in the day, and so that piece of information just didn't move the case forward one bit. More time passed, and finally, a man who had been a new patrolman when Danny died had become the police chief, and he'd never forgotten Danny Paquette. Two decades after the murder, doors were being knocked on again and potential witnesses interviewed. Now it was time to question Melanie face-to-face. Amazingly, she agreed to talk to investigators. She told them about the molestation. They talked about where she'd been and what she'd done on November 9, 1985. She even agreed to take a polygraph. She described the threats and psychological torture in addition to the sexual abuse. Back in 1985, she had told all of this to Eric. He asked her if she wanted him dead. She said she did, but when Eric said he'd do it for her, she claimed that she told him not to. When police were done talking with her, they had her call Eric. He was very leery of having a conversation about this, but she was able to keep him talking. He lied to Melanie when he told her that he hadn't told anyone. Several members of his family knew. Melanie asked Danny what he thought would happen if she told authorities the truth. Well, he said, then we go to jail. Eric was right. He was arrested, pled guilty to second-degree murder, and was sentenced to serve 15 to 36 years in prison. During the negotiations for the plea, it came out that Eric's father had molested his stepsisters. People thought that maybe he had turned that rage away from the father that he loved and turned it on Melanie's stepfather. Now, obviously, that doesn't excuse what Eric did, but it does give us some insight into his mindset when he chose to kill Danny Paquette. Melanie was eventually charged with hindering apprehension, and she was willing to plead guilty with the recommendation that her sentence be suspended. In a surprise twist, the judge rejected that deal and sentenced her to three to six years in prison. So many members of this family and the kids involved in Danny's murder struggled with devastating problems in their lives. They still had choices, but did they have the resources they needed to make the best choices that they could? We're going to talk about that with our guest today. Eric Schwalbach is a teacher, a coach, and has a huge passion for helping kids get better every day, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I can't wait for you to hear all that Eric is doing to be a different kind of P.I., a person of impact.
Eric, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. I know you have lots on your plate. I do, but I'm excited to be here. You've got so many great stories. I wish we had time to tell every single one of them. And it comes from the fact that you've got a lot of experience working with teenagers who have had really tough circumstances in their lives. Some have even ended up in prison. What would you say to people that are listening, if they believe that how our lives end up is just purely a matter of the personal choices we make? When I look at the youth that I work with, you know, they didn't make a choice to be physically abused. They didn't make a choice to lose a parent to substance use disorder. They didn't make a choice to be abandoned by one of their parents or, you know, watch their father or mother domestically abuse the other one. So there's choices that are made when they're youth that we call that create unseen scars that actually lead to choices that they do make down the road, but they don't understand why they make those choices. So I look at it from a youth standpoint is let's look at the, the adverse childhood experiences and the trauma that's happened to them as a child and realize they didn't ask for that. Death, abuse, abandonment, you know, domestic violence, those aren't things that they wanted, but they were born into those situations. Now, what we have to do is help them heal. And we know that the blood of Jesus is the only thing that's going to heal those unseen scars before they start making choices that the world is telling them to make. For example, you've got trauma from being sexually abused. Well, you don't want to think about that trauma. So what are you going to do? You're going to turn to a substance, right? Well, that's the way we know be of sober mind because the, the devil uses that to enter into your mind. So the kids that I know that are incarcerated, nine times out of 10, it was substance use, right? They started using substances in the way that the brain is designed. Your body wants more and more dopamine. So one beer might be good today, but three weeks from now, it's 12 beers and you end up doing something you would have never done sober. There's choices that they didn't get a chance to make that lead to choices that they normally wouldn't make if they weren't on substances, if that makes sense. You bring up an amazing point when you talked about, you know, these kids are, are in a way denying what's happened. So instead of dealing with the trauma, they're self-medicating, they're self-harming, they're doing something that they think is going to make things better. I would imagine that there are a lot of kids out there with a lot of pain that we don't realize they're going through. And it's happening in every socioeconomic status, every religious, non-religious. It's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it really is. And you said it best when you're like, there are these unseen scars and we don't know because how many times does sexual abuse happen behind doors and nobody tells anybody? When you think of sexual abuse, it's always somebody close to them. You know what I mean? So there's there's all of these things that as I work with these kids that are in prison and other inmates, it's the same thing. So when when we post that article that I sent you and people start to realize like these are these are people that are self-medicating to deal with this trauma that um, nobody knows and they're scared to tell anybody. You know what I mean? They're ashamed, especially the young men that I know that have been sexually abused. And for them, just like us, right? If we have pain, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to numb that pain. And nobody tells these young kids that if you numb this pain, you're going to go down a journey of it never stops, right? So like when the beer commercial says drink responsibly, well, you can't, right? By design, these companies create products that your brain wants more dopamine. So it just says it wants more and more. So what we have to do is really inform them and that's kind of my goal now is to capture these prison stories for kids to hear and other prisoners to hear saying, man, what I thought was the solution really became the problem. 
And I love that you're capturing people's stories because, you know, I'm a storyteller on this podcast. And the reason I tell these stories is because it helps people learn. Jesus used storytelling as, I think, his primary teaching method. So I, I want to hear what you are doing with these stories as you're capturing them. There's three things that people need, right? They need hope, they need faith, and they need a job. So hope. Well, as soon as my students realize, hey, my dad was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic because he was physically abused as a, as a child. He joined the military and he was a Purple Heart veteran and dealt, dealt with PTSD from Vietnam War. So he turned to alcohol. So as soon as I explained to them that I grew up without a father from the time I was an infant, didn't know who my father was till I was 12 and he stopped drinking, we immediately have a connection. They're like, well, if you did it, Mr. Schwalbeck or Coach Schwalbeck, then I can do it. So those stories of hope, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to recruit hope dealers across the country to go speak to kids and be like, look, I was just like you and I made it, right? Whether it was sexual abuse, physical abuse, abandonment, because, you know, think about it from a 11 or 12 year old kid, your perception of the world is like, God, why did you put me in this situation? So mm -hmm. if we can tell them, even from a non-faith-based standpoint, look, I made it through this. And then when we do get a chance to tell them about faith, Genesis 50, 20, right? What the devil meant to harm, God's using to save lives. God doesn't make mistakes. He knew that me not having a father was going to help me help a thousand other kids that didn't have a father. And, you know, you saw the video of Rod and Leroy, like Rod texts me every Father's Day and he's like, hey, thanks for teaching me how to love my kids. It wasn't materialistic love. It was the Holy Spirit love. You know what I mean? And, and I always tell Christians, look, if people don't see the Holy Spirit inside of you, they're not going to see it. Right. So if all you do is go to Sunday and hang out on, you know, church on Sundays with other Christians, Non-believers can't see the Holy Spirit, right? If you look at Matthew 25, helping the least of these and all of those things, people see the Holy Spirit inside of us, but being filled with the Holy Spirit is different than being a Christian, right? Like, how do we right. let the Holy Spirit fill us? The Holy Spirit is inside of you, and, and it transforms lives. So, yes, that's the is essence. We've got to get out and let people see the Holy Spirit inside of us, whether they visit prisons, whether they visit schools, or they feed the homeless— you know, it's it's just get out there and, and let them see the Holy Spirit. When you and I were talking earlier, it's interesting to me that a lot of times churches turn a blind eye because they're convinced that these things don't happen within their community and especially within their congregation. But you've worked with enough youth in enough different areas. These problems are everywhere. And every single church is going to have, statistically speaking, they're going to have someone in their midst who is being abused or is an abuser. Absolutely. James 1.27 says, to even call yourself a true religion, you have to take care of widows and orphans, right? So whether you have widows and orphans inside of your congregation, you know, just look up James 1.27. It's pretty clear. So between James 1.27 and Matthew 25, we look at it and go, if these people aren't inside of our congregation, well, that means they're not inside of our building. The only time he got mad was inside of the church. So imagine you're sitting there eating donuts in your big fancy church, right? You're hanging out with all your Christian friends. And this dude with sandals and long hair comes in and flips over tables and starts chasing you out of the building, telling you to go find people that need help. So that's kind of how I look at it. It's like, look, 
there's certain things that he made non-negotiable, right? I always tell people, type in least of these on YouTube and go where he's literally talking about it. He's saying, look, if you don't help the least of these, I'm going to tell you, get away from me. I don't know you. So if you look around your church and the least of these are not in your church, well, then your church needs to say, hey, let's not meet at church today. Let's go out into the community and do this. If on a Tuesday night they could go partner with FCA, their local community, and show the movie The Chosen and feed people. I had a guy that was a big church down here and a really expensive zip code down here in a Baptist church, and he said, well, it's not our responsibility to feed them. Jesus says, Peter, you are to feed my sheep, right? An alarm went off in my head saying, well, why would Jesus say feed people? Because he knows food makes people show up right? So even if you're just making brownies or whatever it is you can do, you know, you go down to your local school and you partner up with the FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and you say, hey, let's show the chosen, right? Once a week for 24 weeks. But at the end of the day, they're going to see Jesus on the screen, but do they see Jesus inside of me, right? So I always ask Christians, do you want to give God one day a year, one day a month, or one day a week? We really should be giving him every day, I don't know if you've ever seen the the John 3.16 story with Tim Tebow, but if they haven't seen it, type in on YouTube, John 3.16, Tim Tebow. And it amazed me because he says, how do 93 million people not know John 3.16? And I took at it as, what if 93 million Christians told everybody about John 3.16? So I take it as a personal challenge to challenge other people and say, hey, look, if Jesus, when he went to heaven, and I'm... I apologize if I don't know the name of the verse because I don't I don't ever remember the verse. But he literally said when he's going to heaven, he says, you, Eric, can do greater things than me because I'm going to be next to the father. So just imagine that Jesus, the son of God, told you and told me that we can do greater things than he did. Right. So imagine what Jesus did on this earth. And he told us we can do greater things than him because he's going next to the father. So. I looked at that and was like, man, let's do big things, right? You never know the one person you reach could be the person that reaches a million people or two million people. You know, that's kind of how I look at it is I focused on the New Testament and Jesus's words. And that's why I want to get the chosen into every prison and every school, because I know that he's really the only answer, right? I've worked in, in jail ministries as well. And I think people think that it's scary or maybe unsafe I never felt that. I I don't know about your experience when you've gone in, but what I always felt was, had I been dealt the same hand that some of these women that I worked with were, would I be in the same situation? Very likely I could be. And so I think putting yourself in people's shoes and having that empathy for the situation they found themselves in. And then the idea is, you know, maybe they didn't have support back then, but you can be a support now. You can show them a better way. If you've got unseen scars, like you said, that some of these things that these women had been through, right? So just imagine some of the women that you dealt with in prison, they were a five-year-old girl. They were getting sexually abused. They were getting physically abused. They were abandoned by one of the parents. One of their parents probably died of a drug overdose. And then they start getting in relationships looking for love. And the cycle repeats itself, right? So they're just constantly getting beaten. And and even though the scars on the outside heal, they never heal on the inside. And they just want to be loved. 
if nobody ever tells them about Jesus and shows them the love of Jesus, right? So it's not John 3.16 and then leave, right? It's John right. 3.16 and John 3.17. And, and I challenge every listener right now to think about this. What's the most popular verse in the Bible? Play this game with me with your friends. Ask your pastors, everybody you know. They'll tell you the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. Then I want you to pause and I want you to ask them what John 3.17 says. And I guarantee your success rate is going to be probably less than 0% that knows what 317 says. John 317 says he came to save the world, not condemn the world. But what do most prisoners feel? Condemned. What do most non-believers feel by the church? They feel condemned, right? And there's all this guilt. And it's like, Jesus wants to love us into heaven. He doesn't want to scare us into heaven. If God wanted to scare me into heaven, there'd be a 200-foot fire-breathing dragon scaring me into heaven. But he doesn't want that, right? He wants us to believe in him, and he wants us to truly know his healing powers. I wanted Victor to understand he heals your unseen scars. He wants to heal you of the wounds that you had. That It wasn't your fault. It wasn't that girl's fault that she was five and she was getting sexually molested, right? And of course, she's going to want to use substances to not think about those things. And chances are it was somebody close to them. And sometimes it could be somebody in the church that did it. And it's mm -hmm. like, in their mind, they've been hurt. We want to solve crimes, right? Well, we have to prevent them, right? Because like, mm -hmm. if the crime happens, we've got to prevent it from happening if we truly want to solve crimes. Because otherwise, we're not really solving the crime. We're just telling people how it happens. I look back and I always blame myself, even though I have hundreds of kids that have played college football, professional sports, it's the one that I lost, right? It's, it's not the 99, it's the one. Victor Ryden, this was, when you see the story, we already had Rod and Leroy living with us with Maya. So I couldn't, we couldn't adopt Victor at this time. But when Victor would run away, Victor's mom would call me and we would go to this area called Pine Hills, which is affectionately known as Crime Hills, where I grew up. And we would go looking for him, right? We'd go to where we thought he would be and to go pick him up. That was in eighth grade. So Victor went on to ninth grade and I kind of lost touch with Victor. When Victor turned 16, two years later, Victor broke into a house with two other young men to steal stuff. And there was an elderly gentleman that was home and confronted them. And Victor ended up beating this guy to death with a brick. You know, Victor was high on pills, on Xanax at the time. And when we were talking back and forth on the, it's called JPay, but it's the prison email system. He was talking about how it was like demons inside of his head. You know, that's why when I say be of sober mind, it was like these drugs are telling you to do things that you normally wouldn't do. So I kept emailing back and forth with Victor, just telling him I loved him, not trying to cram scripture down his throat, but just, just showing him that I loved him. And he'd always ask for me to check on his little brother. And, you know, I would do those things. As Victor started to heal and learn more about God, it was amazing to watch his transformations. Victor was, um, he was a twin, right? So his mom was using drugs. Dad was using drugs. Mom was pregnant with twins. The dad was abusive and ended up beating the mom and one of the twins died. So imagine you've got another, another brother next to you in the womb dies. Victor's born addicted to crack because mom was on substances when he was born. And from what I've seen, a lot of the kids that I know that their parents, their mom was on, on crack when they were born, 
there's a lot of issues with frontal lobe development. So the decision-making that they make isn't the same as everybody else. Teenagers already have frontal lobe issues. And a frontal lobe decision-making is, do you process everything out and make the right decision? And then when he was four, he was sexually molested by a 15-year-old. Victor doesn't know who his father is. So the mom had had two other siblings um, at this point. And she remembers they were playing, and literally the two other siblings said to Victor, well, at least we know who our, who our dad is. And she said from that point on, she said she saw a difference in Victor. And I know that because with me not having a father and my father not being around, I know that feeling. So obviously, he was just self-medicating. And, you know, it starts with marijuana and alcohol, and then it leads to another pill because your brain just wants more and more because it gets used to it. So Long story short, you know, it's amazing to see Victor now saying, hey, you know, Coach Schwalbeck, God has a plan, right? How do we use this? How do we use this plan? How do we help kids outside of prison? And then how do I use Victor's story inside of the prisons, right? How do I film these stories and let other prisoners realize Jesus was the only thing that could have healed Victor's unseen scars? He talks about being in a group and when he speaks to the men about his healing and all those things, they get up and they give him a hug and like how how much that means to him. So to me, like that's the most amazing thing. You know, Victor's in prison for 45 years because he beat a guy to death with a brick. But at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't love him any less than he loves me. Victor didn't choose to be abused in the womb. Victor didn't choose to be sexually molested. He didn't choose to be abandoned by his father. But if these young men can't get people like us in their lives with the Holy Spirit loving on them, we're never going to break the cycle. One of the videos that I'll send to you is Rod and Leroy. All three of their brothers had been to prison. So everybody just assumes, well, they're going to go on that same path because, you know, mom was dating a drug dealer. and But you realize when Rod talks about love, it's really unconditional love of the Holy Spirit. That would be the biggest success story is, is, you know, every one of these young men that are in prison for murder or drug dealing, they realize that God had a plan for their life. And that's why Genesis 50, 20 is so important for people to understand and, and realize like Jesus taking that beating and that hung, hung from the cross, that blood is to heal our unseen scars. Yes, it's going to wash away our sins and all of those other things. But these kids have scars that need healed that had nothing to do with their choices. And you have given us so much to think about. We're going to put all kinds of links in the show notes to different resources that everybody who wants to learn more about what Eric does, you'll be able to check all that out. What's the best way for people to connect with you if they do want to know more about all of the awesome work you're doing? There's two ways to do it. One, they can call me at my on my cell phone, 407-616-4036. And my email is E-S-C-H-W-A-L-B as in boy, A-C-H, at gmail.com. And my big thing is, yes, there's some things that they can do to, you know, we can donate Bibles to prisons here. But the first thing I'm going to do is encourage them to do what I'm doing here, right? Go to their local high school and say, hey, can I'd like to meet the head of your FCA. And they'll be like, oh, okay. This fall, Friday nights, everybody's going to have a high school football game in every town across this country. Wouldn't it be amazing that if before the football game, all the churches in these local towns were showing the chosen and feeding kids, not just for the high school football players, 
not just for the cheerleaders, but for every kid in that school could come and watch the chosen before or after the football game. You know, whether it's the, we call it a tail, tailgating for Jesus, whether it's the fifth quarter for Jesus, whatever it is, because once we expose them to the chosen, they'll download it on their app. So then you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to feed them every week, but you could have a Zoom discipleship. You know, FCA is an international organization, you know, so if you don't feel comfortable going to the prisons, if you call me or email me, the first thing I'm going to offer is, hey, what can we do in your place, right? Because that's kind of what I want to do is I, I want to just flip tables like Jesus and say, hey, let's get out there. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying I want to whip anybody, but you can do what I did, right? Because nothing I did was magical. You can get your church and go down there and, and buy pizzas for some kids because think about it. If you show the movie The Chosen before a football game and one kid, only one kid comes and gets free food. Well, you never know what that one kid is going to do with the rest of his life. If I plant a seed, God is going to move the mountain, right? You don't need to pick up a shovel. You just need to plant a seed. And I guarantee you, when we have the chosen, the story of Jesus in every school and every prison across this country, we're going to change the world, right? When God says, you can do greater things than I did, or Jesus said that, well, that's all it takes. All we got to do is tell them about this dude, Jesus, the son of God. He'll take care of the rest. Like I said, feel free to call me or email me. And, you know, we could talk about what we're doing here in Florida. I'm looking at creating a video series, faith-based, that we create DVDs of all the prisoners in Florida that could be shared everywhere else. But I'm going to just encourage them to do the same thing here and call me and say, hey, let's do it in Georgia. Let's do it here. You know, you can contact your governor the same way I contacted my governor. Nine times out of 10, the governor in your state's a Christian. Whether he's a Republican or Democrat, he's still a Christian. Even though both sides think the other sides are going to hell, <laughs> they're, still, they're, they're still Christians. And it's like, hey, freedom of religion is not freedom from religion, right? So I can't make yeah. a kid come learn about the chosen and the life of Jesus. But I do have a responsibility as a Christian to give them that opportunity. Even if you've got a town of 3,000 people, Hey, let's show the story of the chosen through FCA at your school and see how many people want to come up and tailgate with Jesus, you know? I love it. Absolutely love it. Thank you again, Eric. I know that this episode is going to make a huge difference. And someday in heaven, you'll find out who all it touched. So thank you so, so much. Hey, you're welcome. You know, you can call me anytime. And next time we'll talk about other stories so they can learn more. You never know that one person's life you touch turns into somebody like me who's a fanatic that tries to save everybody. So don't think, oh, I only saved one kid. Think the kid you saved could be somebody that believes in the Holy Spirit and tries to reach everybody like I did. That's right. Somebody saved Billy Graham and look what happened. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Eric, for all your wisdom and everybody check out the show notes and look into these videos, these resources you will be amazed at what you will learn. And and I want to leave everybody with this. I want them to remember, Jesus said, you can do greater things than me because I'm going to be next to the Father if the Holy Spirit is inside of you. So I want you to think, not am I a Christian, but am I filled with the Holy Spirit? And if you ever have a question, all you got to do is go onto YouTube and type in Holy Spirit, and there's going to be a thousand different faith-based videos that talk about what being filled with the Holy Spirit is like. Because all you got to do at that point is say, hey, God, take over my life. 
everybody around you is going to think you're crazy. And that's okay because they thought Jesus was crazy. Like who would do all of these things because the world's telling you to take care of me, mine, and my stuff, where really every religion since the beginning of time says, take care of others first, and then God's will is going to be done on on earth as it is in heaven. So God bless everybody, and may God bless everything you do, say, and touch. Amen. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Let's take a look this week at Matthew 18.6, and I'm reading from the New International Revised Version. What if someone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin? If they do, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned at the bottom of the sea. I always thought that would be kind of an awesome verse to paint on a children's wing at a church. It so plainly expresses how important children are to Jesus. They're vulnerable and we, the adults, are to be their protectors. So many of the kids in today's case and that our guest Eric Schwalbach mentors have not been treated well by adults. It's like they have had the millstones put around their necks and then been told that they just need to swim better. There are so many ways that you can make a difference in kids' lives. Check to see if your local school needs volunteers to tutor or even just hang out and be a positive influence on kids. I know that churches are always looking for volunteers in children and youth ministry. You may be able to lead a Bible study in a juvenile detention center. They don't need anything fancy, just someone to show up and show them the love of Jesus by telling them that they matter to him and they matter to you. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. And I've put a link to a a really good one in the show notes. I've had so many amazing guests, so you don't want to miss out on the wisdom and the information that they bring to the table. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact. When you share this episode and when you subscribe, give me a five-star rating and a nice review. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.